0: Welcome to Rethink Retirement, a next up podcast. We're here to show you how you can use your skills and your experience as you move into retirement or unretirement, as we like to call it. I'm Victoria Tomlinson.
1: And I'm Trevor Hatton. And each episode, we invite a guest to share their story of leaving traditional working life and starting new things. And we both know what a challenging time this can be so we hope that we will inspire you with ideas and perhaps if you're finding things a bit harder than you might have expected that the stories that you hear will lift your spirits
0: definitely and today we're delighted to welcome christina patterson I contacted Christina when she wrote a piece called Love Island for the Over 50s and thought you're one of us. Uh, The whole tone of the piece was that, you know, we're all very young still and we need to be out there a bit more and doing things, living life to the full later in life. Christina, welcome. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Hi.
1: Christina, I know you put Love Island for the Over 50s into context for us (laughs) a few minutes ago, but... I still thought it was a wonderful idea. Perhaps you could just give us a quick background uh, to your life, your career and how you got to where you are now.
2: Well, thank you for your comments about the Love Island piece. It was great fun to write, though I am definitely not going to be strutting around in a bikini on reality any <laughs> anytime soon. Um, so I've had a very uh, varied work life. I started off in publishing and um, then worked in the arts. I worked at the Southbank Center for some years, uh, programming and presenting literary events. And then I went to run a small arts organization called the Poetry Society, which is the national organization promoting poetry. And during that time, while both at the Southbank and the Poetry Society, I had been doing um, freelance book reviewing for the Observer, Independent, Independent on Sunday, TLS, and so on. And I had secretly always wanted to be a journalist but kind of never really known how to do it or had the nerve. I, I remember when I was at, at university, I went to see a careers officer and she said, "Um, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd love to go into journalism. And she said... Oh, that's very competitive, and I thought, oh, well, I better not try then. Madly, I mean, it just shows how you know, madly, how yeah. madly things to be. And I had, I'd been very, very academic at school, always got A's and everything, and um, had applied to Oxford along with my three. Good friends at school and my my school was a, a a grammar school that turned comprehensive just after I went there and they didn't do that kind of Oxbridge sausage machine thing that um, lots of private schools and grammar schools, well private schools still do grammar schools used to do so. Um, my three friends who got private tuition all got in and I didn't get private tuition and I didn't. Am I bitter? Yes, extremely bitter, <laughs> however many years. On. And I think that was probably what gave me my uh, fear of uh, rejection and failure. So I didn't go into journalism, I did go into publishing and the arts and I'm very glad I did because I had a very interesting time and when I think about the people I met over the years I was incredibly privileged I met you know most of the great writers of the 20th century but when I got the opportunity somebody the literary editor of the independent approached me and said would I like to apply to to be his deputy and um I was torn because I was running an organization. I mean, only 15 employees, but I, I have to admit, I loved being the boss. You know, the, the finance officer put on my pigeonhole, Queen Bee, you know, because we I mean, <laughs> just it was, it was such a laugh, but we used to have margaritas on the roof. And, well, I mean, the the, the the ostensible excuse for that was I started a kind of poetry reading group, but we would have margaritas on the roof and we'd have knockoff on a Friday, we'd have what we call the five-body vibe and all go down to the poetry cafe, which is also a bar, and all have. Um, San Miguel's or Chardonnay or whatever one drank in those days so it was great great fun and it was a, a you know difficult to give that up for what was essentially sideways a sideways move you know at best but um I became deputy literary editor of the paper and um soon worked on arts as well and then moved to the comment desk and within a few years I was a columnist had my own column twice a week I did big interviews um So it was fantastic. I had 10, well, I was going to say I had 10 fantastic years at The Independent. In fact, I had nine fantastic years at The Independent. And then there was a change of regime. The editor um, who I really liked and who really liked me was fired and a new editor came in. And I think it's fair to say that mutual affection did not flow. And um, uh, one day there was talk of, there were cuts on the paper uh, because The Independent was in, you know, like all newspapers, very stretched financially. And they were looking at the columnists on, you know, people who were expensive, and I was among them. Um, Not, by the way, uh, Victoria, in the kind of terms you mentioned to me in the in our little, you know, the corporate bit of our chat before we started, but in journalistic terms, I earned a good salary. And, uh, and that was, you know, I and various colleagues were deemed too expensive, which was sort of very difficult um but you know understandable what for me was not understandable was that um uh I had been asked I had asked if I could keep a contract for my column because a column when you're a newspaper a column is kind of the top the top thing really and it's and I thought that could be my brave new terrifying world of freelancing which I knew was the only option because journalism is you know in, in a bad old way and yeah. I knew I would not get a job like the one I had And um, and everybody else kept their column. And a new person in a new role um, did not allow me to have mine, which, you know, was a bit weird because a few weeks after I left the Independent, I was shortlisted for the main journalism prize, the political journalism prize, the Orwell prize. And I was the only woman on the shortlist. So it was very embarrassing for the paper. But I can tell you a lot more embarrassing for me. And um, and I was absolutely devastated and mortified and felt that I had lost my Role in the world, my status, my salary, and my and more more than all of that, my vocation, because um it had taken me a long time to find what I really believed to be my vocation, which is essentially as a writer. And I loved it, I was good at it, readers loved my work, and um in one second that was all taken away. And it was it it was I've had a lot of grief in my life. I mean, as things stand now, I've lost every member of my family i've had cancer twice you know i was diagnosed with an incurable autoimmune disease in my 20s when i was uh crippled with paralyzing pains um you know i i mean i'm you know obviously hashtag first world problems i've had a very privileged life in so many ways but i've been through a thing or two and i have to say that uh losing the job i adored was absolutely among the worst things that's ever happened to me so um I have huge empathy for anyone who is struggling with a kind of post-retirement, post-redundancy, post-work identity existence. It's a very tough thing. You know, unfortunately, nobody has yet worked out exactly why we are on this planet or whether we are random collisions of atoms. But one of the ways that we certainly in the Western world make some kind of sense, tell ourselves a story about what it means to have To be alive here and create some kind of meaning for ourselves is through our work. And if you have work you enjoy, that is an incredible privilege in life. If you have work you enjoy that is well remunerated, that is absolutely at the top of the the pyramid of desire. And I was lucky enough to have work that paid me well enough and that I loved and I lost it. And so the last decade for me has been about piecing together a portfolio life that works for me. And um, and in fact, I, I did. I've, I've written two books, and the first one was um, called "The Art of Not Falling Apart," and it was inspired by my experience of losing my job. And um, I decided, in a kind of journalistic way, to sit down and interview lots of people in lots of different situations in life about how they had coped when life went wrong for them, because life does go wrong for all of us at some point.
0: Gosh. You've articulated that beautifully, as a writer would do, uh Christina, because you know a lot of the people that we see and that's why we started next up, you know they're in that post work grief stage, if you like um and i we don't talk about it enough, really, uh mm. and you know you've put it so beautifully there. And yet I shouldn't use those words because it's such a horrible time for people. No,
2: I think it's I mean I'm delighted, I'm delighted if you if you think that. But also, I mean, what, what you've just said, I think I remember a friend of mine, a, a colleague, she wasn't in fact my well, I won't say, I won't say who who she was because it will give away her identity, but somebody I was close to who went through something very similar at exactly the same time as me. And um and I wrote, sent her an email saying, I feel as if I've been murdered and and she said I feel exactly the same and uh, obviously it was a melodramatic way of putting it but it was absolutely how I felt I yeah. felt like a dead person
0: walking around for a while but here you are now and I think you've got a, what seems like a, a really lovely life so can you tell me how you kind of put that you said so you talk about piecing together a portfolio how did um, you go about doing that and were there any surprises and kind of any tips for others I guess
2: Yes. Um, Well, goodness, where do I start? Um, So after I lost my job, I was in a kind of swirl of anxiety, as anyone is in that situation. And I had a kind of vague vision of what I wanted to achieve. And um, in my, you know, kind of post redundancy life. And uh, that vision was I mean, gosh, it's all so much harder than you think it will be. Yes. And everything takes 10 times longer than you think yes. it will. And so I, I did contact um, uh, newspaper editors of various kinds straight away and, you know, essentially said, I'm up for writing. But I, at, when I lost my job, I thought that's kind of it for me for journalism. And, and it hasn't been it for me in a way. Because I feel as though I had the best of it, and um, and I didn't want to. I mean, in, in executive job terms, to go from you know a columnist to a kind of jobbing hack feels a bit like going from chief exec to receptionist. You know, it feels demeaning, yeah. which is absolutely not to to no. you know. I don't want to you know. I think everybody's work is worth an enormous amount, but you know, it's status wise, it's difficult. Um, and actually, it has to be said that for anyone who goes from paid employment to freelance life, you have to get used to that because that is the deal. It is the deal. You can't be grand about it. And uh, if you are grand about it, I mean, you can be as grand as you like and you can nurture your grandiose illusions in the privacy of your bedroom study, sitting or wherever. But they won't, uh, you know, they won't be cast any wider because, you um, you know, you. in one sense, you're nobody. I mean, we are all the, what we hope, wonderful, complex, interesting people, we hope we are. But in, in status terms, um, people actually want what you can give them in a work context. They're not particularly interested in what you've done before or who you are or yeah. whatever your aspirations might be. They don't care what you want. They care whether what you are offering at that particular moment hits a need they have at that particular moment. And in a way, I would say that's the fundamental lesson I've learned, and it's a tough one, particularly, you know, if you're from a journalistic and literary background, you know, we don't think about money at all. We're very we're grand about money in the sense that, you know, we don't want to sully our, sully our souls by thinking about it. Most of us earn very little, actually. Artists and writers earn very, very little. Most journalists earn very little, certainly compared to people in the corporate world. Um, But we then, you know, the kind of compensation for that is work that is meant to be interesting, which mostly is interesting. And, um, and a sense that, you know, we, we don't get our grubby, you know, our hands grubby in that way. And if you want to pay your bills, you have to get your (laughs) hands grubby. So that's a big shock. I had a, a big plan to do a research project arising. I'd done some lots of campaigning about nursing. I'd had a six operations, a very bad experience of nursing in times that were, you know, absolutely luxurious compared to what we have now. And I've done a, a, a year-long investigation into nursing that had ended up in, um, in a weeks-long uh, sort of report in The Independent. And that, in fact, was the work that got me shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. And um, I wanted to do a big research project on empathy and compassion. And I got various people lined up with a think tank and a very eminent sociologist, and we talked about doing some work with the LSE, I spent two years trying to get that off the ground and had everybody lined up. And then, you know, one person was fired from their job, the person at the think tank. And then I tried for another year with somebody else and it didn't happen. So I spent three years trying to get something off the ground that didn't happen. And uh, of course, I wasn't paid a penny by anyone for any of that work. And during that time, I was offered all kinds of things I didn't take. Which were then not open to me. And also during that time, in one sense, my market value had gone down because my value when I started was as someone who had just been a columnist um, on a national newspaper. And my, va- my value three years on was, you know, jobbing hack in a sense.
1: Um, Christina, could yes. I just, um, as Victoria said, you, you talked about the whole emotional roller coaster with real eloquence. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to go back briefly and just ask you who did you kind of lean on? Who did you get support from? What was the impact of all of the things that were happening to you on people close to you?
2: Well, I was single, I didn't have a family. And uh, for me, that was, you know, part of the horror in a way that I was 49. Mm -hmm. And I was facing my 50th birthday without a partner, a family, an income or a job, which was not really what I planned for myself. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) And um, at one point, here's a surreal thing, and I, I did write about this in my book, I was so exhausted from the effort of trying to cobble together 200 quid here, 300 quid there, etc, that uh, I I went out, I'd gone on, on a writing retreat, and a friend said, um, oh, why don't you put your flat on Airbnb before you go? And I'd only vaguely heard of Airbnb, but I did. And I got, you know, lots of requests for bookings. And when I got back, I I thought, gosh, you know, it it seems that my bed is worth more than my brain, which is not really what I was expecting. So uh, for, you know, a bit, I mean, not a very long period, but there was a period of sort of weeks when I would stay with my mother or various friends um, and rent out my flat. And I remember... um, once i had a a booking come, people come in and um and i wandered around where i live and then went into the local church i was absolutely exhausted and i was doing sky i do the sky news press preview i'd be doing that twice a a month for probably 15 years or something like that and i was booked to go on that night and um i ended up so tired i lay down on a pew in my local church and thought oh you know i feel like getting you know 40 winks not that I I actually I can never sleep anywhere but it was a kind of it was a kind of sort of despair thing really and to my absolute horror someone came along and I thought you know could this be the vicar's wife saying I'm sorry you'll have to leave now and I thought uh, so of course I was mortified and I felt like a tramp or you know of course one doesn't use those words anymore but those were the words I used when I was young about homeless people. And for whom, by the way, I have enormous empathy and even more since realising how narrow the line is between being OK and not being OK. But I do remember being essentially chucked out of my my local church after lying on a pew like a homeless person and thinking, God, I really hope this person doesn't switch on the TV and see me on Sky later tonight. <laughs> that is going to be extremely embarrassing (laughs) so so, you know that was a low point so uh, I have I I have wonderful friends and my friends were very supportive and I remember sitting at a friend's going to stay with a friend and sitting at her kitchen table and just crying Mm -hmm. and um and you know lots of people said you'll be fine and of course ultimately I was and am fine but that is absolutely not to minimize the the pain of what I went through and what almost everyone who goes through redundancy goes through um or to say that it would all be fine in a Pollyanna way because it you know in lots of ways it won't be as I said I spent three years on a project that didn't happen the other thing um that I I think I was saying uh, before the uh before my computer went mad is that um So many people said to me, oh, you must be on boards. You should be on boards. And I'd been on boards when I was young, arts boards. I was asked to go on quite a few boards and I did two or three and gave those up. I don't know what made me think I had to give them up when I joined the independent, but I did give them up. And I just thought, oh yeah, you know, I get asked to go on boards. No, no problem. I mean, they were, they were arts boards. They were not paid, but, and I had a (laughs) full-time I had very full time jobs anyway, so it was fine. But um, when people said, oh, you should go on boards, I thought, oh, yes, that's a good idea. I'll go on boards. I had no idea how competitive it was. And I had people like the permanent secretary at the Department of Health saying, you know, yes, please do apply. So I would apply and had hardly any interviews. And um, and then because I am politically you know, kind of not have not been for the last 13 years in tune with um, this government, and particularly for the last six, um, I didn't feel I could get through any public appointments or anything that involved, um, you know, kind of sort of endorsement from government. And so I had thought that I would get two or three board roles and you know that would be a baseline income, and then I could write books on top of that. And I and that was very very tough. And um, in the end, I took on a a board role for a big charity, which I really loved. I did one term of three years, and it was intellectually challenging and fascinating. I didn't feel I could do another term at that point because I was on the. uh, what do they call it? A, HR committee, and we we appointed a, a new chief exec, and it was incredibly time consuming. And I thought this is turning into n- not a full time job, but you know a very substantial investment of time. And practically everything I'm doing is unpaid. You, one can reach that point if you're freelance, because as I'm sure you'll know, you know you, there's so much admin, emails, diary management, um, research for this that, and the other. You know, so many kind of sunk costs in in Things that don't necessarily have money attached to them, and then I did get a, a, a paid role on a housing association. So I, I had emotional support from friends, um, but not many people I knew were doing what I was trying to do. So I didn't really have examples of this is how you do it. This is go from how you go from having a salary as a you know journalist with a you know fascinating job interviewing you know Nobel laureates to being there's nobody sitting in the corner of your flat, um, sending emails into the email that aren't answered, you know? So <laughs> it would have been quite useful to a few seminars in that, I suppose. <laughs> and eventually, you know, I have cobbled together a life. I have a lovely life. Look, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, uh, nobody's going to get out any tiny violins for me. I don't earn all that much. In recent years, I have not earned particularly very much. I hadn't tried to, to be honest. Um, because I've had, I've, it's been more important for me, I, I had a book, um, my brother died just before the pandemic, and I he didn't have a partner or family, and I had to sort out everything, which was, I mean, obviously it was horrific when he died, he was, my sister died um, in 2000, both my parents are dead, and none of us had partners or children, so um, A, it was horrific being the last one left in the family, and B, I had to organize absolutely everything and there was no will. And C, I thought I now have to write the book I've wanted to write all my life before I die, which is a family memoir, partly about my sister, my dear sister, Caroline had schizophrenia and had a very tough life. And um, that had a big impact on the whole family and a particularly big impact on me. And in fact, I've uh, written a piece for the sunday times magazine that's coming out in in a few weeks about her illness and generally the effect of mental illness on siblings which i think is something that's not talked about much at all and when people talk about mental health as they seem to do all the time these days i think what they generally mean is sort of vague anxiety and not schizophrenia or you know related bipolar or some of these um illnesses so um yeah so i I did write that book and i and I got a you know I got a good deal for it, and there was an auction, and that was all very exciting and that was my focus and the book came out a year ago in hardback and it's coming out in paperback um in a couple of weeks and so earning money has not been my focus for the last few years obviously, I have you know paid my bills and also I decided um to train as a coach because uh i well one reason was financial because i i didn't want to you know writing is not really a sustainable uh, living in the long term now and uh, and i didn't want the pressure to be on it to to pay the bills in it because it it means you can't write what you want to write and for me writing is the thing really um but also because i massively missed after by then 8 years at home on my own i do have a partner so i'm not completely kind of conversationless in my life my work is at home on my own most of the time and as an extrovert um as you may realize because you have probably been unable to shut me up since you started <laughs> this podcast, as an extrovert i massively massively missed sort of sparky human interaction just that engagement and i loved running an organisation i loved having colleagues i've really missed having colleagues so i thought um coaching with its emphasis on helping people fulfill potential which for me is you know one of the most important things in life mm. um, and also because journalism is all about asking questions and listening unlike being on a podcast because I'm about talking
0: <laughs> and <so> great.
2: Great. <laughs> in response to every question you're asked and um, uh, I thought that would make quite good use of my sort of journalistic skills and obviously coaching is different uh, and I love it, actually. I really love it. And I'm currently training to do group coaching, which I think I'll enjoy as much, if not more, because I love a group dynamic. So what I'm aiming to get towards is a life that is sort of 50-50, writing, sitting at home in front of my computer, with a blank page and then coaching, broadcasting, speaking the other stuff. And um, in the process, I will also get back into thinking, you know what, this thing about working, it's also meant to earn you money and not just be about sort of yeah. you know what interests you. So so that's my focus, really.
0: Well, I think that's brilliant though, Christina. Um, I you know, people just don't talk about how hard this can be this next stage. And do you know what? I think you will reassure many men because the thing that we were saying when I started next up was a lot of men who had thought their friends all said oh well you'll go on boards and they kind of raised expectations whether they said it or not there was sort of an expectation and I I know that quite a few men think oh well women are taking all the roles now that's mm. why I'm not getting them. we are really not. <laughs> <laughs> I just say it but you're great. We aren't. But I think the ones who do, I don't think people understand how hard the women work at it. It doesn't just land in their laps. Um, And I think it's really reassuring for everybody to hear that this is a difficult stage, but also also a difficult role to go for. But also there is also so much to life other than that, you know, Mm. and that's what we're focused on is trying to help people see a much wider spectrum there. And you know, the money bit is hard, you know, if you need to earn money still, and a lot of people still do, that is a hard thing. So I think that's really reassuring. So thank you for sharing that. So we're at the stage now, you've got, you sort of, I don't think anybody ever cracks it, do they? For sort of, particularly if you're freelance, it's sort of changing over the time. But what's on the horizon for you? You know, are you feeling contented now or have you still got plans for the next stage? How's that going?
2: Oh, I'm never contented. <sighs> never, ever contented. But um, I mean, I, you know, I mean, in one sense, I have a very happy life and a very lovely life and um I'm very happy with my lovely bloke who is sitting at this table, punched <laughs> over this computer, who I met when I was 51. So there's hope for people who have uh, not managed to uh, find love. It took me a very long time. Um, and so, you know, I have a lovely life. We, I'm sitting in a house in Umbria. And... Um, you know, which is also definitely not warranting any tiny violins. And um and you know, we we have a lovely life and I do lots of work I enjoy. Work-wise, I'm never satisfied, but um I don't think i I'm not sure many people are ever satisfied on the work front and um and I think particularly writers are never satisfied. And the writing life, which is the kind of core of who I am and what I do, is a very, very tough life because The two books I've written, I wrote very quickly once I had the deals lined up with the publishers. But getting a deal, even with a very good agent, you know, is is tricky because there are a lot of ducks to line up. And um, so I'm at the process at the moment where I've been mulling over ideas for my next book. And I haven't kind of worked out exactly what it is. And uh, so, of course, I'm miserable about that um but uh broadly speaking I enjoy most of the work I do I love doing the broadcasting I love the coaching I've written a few pieces one for the Observe one for the Sunday Times I love my reviewing so broadly speaking I have a very nice work life uh but am I satisfied with it absolutely not because, <laughs> because <laughs> I don't know that one ever is
1: no <laughs> that's uh, that's great that and and you know we we meet lots of people who have gone on and done all sorts of things, and and many common threads. But one of them is, you know, one thing leads to another. That that you know, if you ask them, what are you going to be doing in in five years' time, they say, "Well, I, I've no idea, but it won't be what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be different in some way." Um, and and it's quite reassuring to hear people say that. I think. Um, and and I wanted to ask you, you've given us so much.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, you've been incredibly generous and open. Um, if you were to kind of look back over that whole period and sort of distill any advice for other people, in things you might have done differently, that sort of thing, what would you what would you say to people listening to this podcast? Hmm. Lessons learned, I suppose.
2: Lessons learned, gosh. One of the things I would say is. Is that whether in employment or as a freelancer obviously taking competence as red because you know that is a rep pretty you know central part of any work i would say that one of the most important things is to be a pleasure to work with because um people don't work with people they think are difficult and um even the most prima donna prima donna does not get to be a prima donna forever. Everybody's star fades in the end. You know, powerful people are fired. Politicians give us, you know, in a way, the kind of most vivid examples of these. Boris Johnson may well be, well, is milking his the disastrous job he did and... Um, You know, he's racking up his five million for his nonsense already. But I don't think anyone on this planet would say that makes him happy. What made him happy was power and he has lost it. And um, I think that we all lose our status. We are all fundamentally the same, not in our character, but we are all I'm not I'm not. christian i don't have any religious beliefs but at a fundamental level i do believe you know to use a metaphor that we are all the same before god and i think you should treat everybody with equal respect and people who pull rank or hierarchy or bully their colleagues should be profoundly ashamed of themselves And we'll probably find, in one sense, that they reap what they sow at some point in their life. I mean, obviously, I'm not Pollyanna. I don't believe that, you know, the world is just and equal and, you know, and uh, that Putin will get his just desserts or anyone else. We don't live in that kind of world. But broadly speaking, I think if you are decent and do your work to a very high standard, that will serve you in very good stead. But if it all goes belly up, as it does for many of us, and as it did for me, then decency and competency will not in themselves guarantee that you get the work or pay the bills. And the advice I'm about to give is as much to myself as anyone else, because I'm not very good at this, but it is true that if you don't ask, you don't get. And people will not know about you if you don't alert them to your existence and the possible ways in which you can help them. You know, I hate, I was brought up to absolutely hate self-promotion. My father was one of those men. He he, he was a very senior civil servant. He was running the Department of National Savings at the end. And he thought board roles would land in his lap. And they didn't really. And it never occurred to him that he, he should ask for them because he was far too modest and he'd never really asked for anything in his life. And he'd sort of had that old fashioned thing of being kind of dragged up a hierarchy almost in spite of himself. So I think I think one does have to ask right. politely, respectfully. But if you don't ask, you don't get. And I think probably there are ways of promoting yourself, which don't stick in the craw you know we don't all have to be doing self-promotional videos on TikTok but there are other ways of um, reminding people that you exist and that you have professional skills that are of value but I do think I mean I have two kind of um, you know if I were to pick I know companies now will have their sort of mission statement and their you know purpose and their vision values and blah 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 and they all sound like Nelson Mandela and you know, and they're not but um, if I were to pick a kind of motto by which I sort of try to live my life. It's probably from Keats's poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn. And he says, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. And for me, it's beauty and truth. And if it passes that test, then it's fine by me.
0: Oh, gosh, well, what a wonderful, we've never had anybody as um, poetic, but then I'd expect that from you, from the poetry side of that, to finish on there. That is very thought-provoking. The beauty is truth bit. I will mull that for some time to come. Christina, thank you so much. We have loved interviewing you. And yes, you talk a lot, but that's what we want from this. We don't want to have to (laughs) talk to the podcast. And I think you've looked at things very differently from many of the people that we've interviewed, which is so good, because otherwise this will become samey. So it's wonderful to have spent time with you very insightful very interesting i will come back to you again many times i suspect thank you so much for your time christina and we wish it been you an hard. absolute
2: pleasure it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you both and i'm sorry i talked so much and by the way oh. when, I'm coaching, when i'm coaching i have learned how to shut the f up you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's encouraging <laughs> a thank lesson you. for all of us thank you
0: well that was very different. That was very
1: thoughtful. Well I found it really moving actually. Mm. You know there are clearly some themes there that we have explored uh, with guests in the past but yeah. Yeah. she managed to put it in a literary poetic spiritual way yes. which I thought was incredibly powerful.
0: It was and the bit about I'm now more empathetic to homeless people. I think I've done quite a lot with homeless people in the past and actually you know there but for the grace of god you know you're you're a, a paycheck away i think is the phrase you know for yeah. any really um and actually it it's good just to think about kind of where you are in the world and other people with you and you know she christina absolutely recognizes how she's still privileged and how you know it's the phrase no tiny violins for me because you know she's having a great life but very honest about the real emotional challenges that we have seen and i don't think many people you know i think thank you to christina because actually talking about this will help a lot of people i know yeah uh, and it's a bit about knowing that you're not alone that's what we always wanted from next up but it was helping people understand that there's a process there's a grieving process that you go through uh when you leave she said something about i'm just trying to think yeah she said you know, I was devastated. I lost my role, my salary, my vocation, and I yeah. think you said it that that is how everybody feels really when they leave. I say everybody, one or two don't, but most people do feel quite shocked from that
1: process. Um, and, and and but ultimately, it was incredibly uplifting. I I well, thought I she was very thoughtful about doing the right thing being a decent person yes you know asking for help in an appropriate way yeah. you know, alerting people to the fact that you need their help um without necessarily being a big self promoter no and that's the thing all really story. yes i thought it was I really moving
0: think, well and i think particularly the more senior that people come and sort of the more experienced they haven't needed on the whole to be i i, I don't think anybody wants this phrase self-promotional because yeah. it isn't what it's about but it's that bit of being clear about who I am what I'm looking for and I think we were we talked about this not long ago about a banker we were working with and he said I'm much better in my coffees now because I'm clearer about what I'm wanting and asking for it and I'm now getting much mm. more success from them um, he didn't really know why he was having coffees we we're just having coffees but it gradually became kind of more refined with that and then things start happening when people are, "Ah, like, oh, that's what you're looking for." Oh, well, let me introduce you. Oh, let yeah. me have a think about why don't you? That bit, yeah. and it's not about. It's just people want to help others actually, fundamentally on the whole. And if they don't quite know what you're looking for and who you are and things, then it's quite hard to do. Yeah. So if you've been moved by Christina and would like to hear other stories, they're all very different. Uh, that's what makes it so interesting. So just. Go and have a look at our website, next hyphenup.com, and don't forget that hyphen. And we have so many stories, video stories, blogs, tips, insights uh, that hopefully will help you going through this phase, which isn't always a very easy journey.
1: Absolutely. Please do join us next time at next hyphenup.com.